Merry Christmas to you. Praise the Lord for the privilege to worship the Lord on this Christmas morning. Christmas brings us to the end of a four-week journey as we've made our way through the season of Advent. Advent, as we've talked about, that season of longing, fasting, looking forward to the coming and the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, in the celebration of Christmas, but for us also for his second coming. But today is the feast day of the nativity, of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we rejoice in his coming, that long-expected Savior. I love that line in, that we just sang in, the, in the, uh, the hymn there, the desire of nations. Uh, come that long-expected Jesus picks up on that line as well. This fact that Jesus is the desire of the nations, they just don't know it. He's the fulfillment of all our human longings. And yet, like Saint, the great St. Augustine, you know, we're restless until we find our rest in him. We, we, we go after that. We're, we're longing to satisfy the desires of our heart. The nations are longing to satisfy desires for peace and for justice and for prosperity. All good things, penultimate things, but good things. But like St. Augustine, they're restless until they find their rest in the source of all these things. And I love that line that he then is the desire of all the nations. They just, they don't know it. And in Christmas, we have the revelation of the fulfillment, if you will, of that desire. I'm particularly struck, though it's not a point in my sermon, but I, I'm particularly struck in the line in Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, and also in our text this morning, which you know, we rotate in Christmases from the theology of Christmas to the narrative of Christmas to different angles on Christmas. And this year we're considering the historical narrative there in Luke chapter 2 and that familiar story given to us by Luke, uh, the scientist and the historian, if you will, giving us details we don't get in the other Gospels. But I'm particularly struck in our text this morning that when the, when the angels come to the shepherds, and calm them down. We can understand their, their, their fear and dread as the heavens rip open and all of a sudden there's angels. We think that biblical people kind of got that. It's what happened back in those days. No, it's not what happened back in those days. Um, angels bursting into the sky while you're out shepherding your flock was not normal. And, uh, and, and, and again, caused them great dread and great fear. But the, shep- the, the angels say to the shepherds, picking up on that line from Isaiah 9, For there is born to you this day in Bethlehem a child. To you. It's interesting that line is thrown in that we hear these things all the time. And this is one of the dangers, actually, of Christmas, of coming back to it year after year. The the terms of Christmas, the ideas of Christmas, the images of Christmas uh, become cliches to us. They become white noise. But it's amazing to these shepherds is told to you. Is born. It's not just a child born. It's not just a king is born. But it's to you. It's gift. And Isaiah, the Lord gives that through Isaiah as well. For unto you a child is born. This is the gift of all gifts that this child will be born unto us. Well, what I want to do in our, our time this morning is I want to think about this narrative that Luke gives to us in Luke chapter 2. And the title of the sermon is Glory to God in the Highest. This moment that we have in the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ is one in which the heavens rip open and the angels come in their great choir and begin to sing praises to him. 
But I want us to think about the context of this celebration today in what we have in Luke. Because Christmas comes, Jesus' birth comes into a context, and we get some of these details for us here in Luke chapter 2, and I'd like us to think about it because it puts in high relief, or the juxtaposition really lets the glory of God shine. It's interesting that the Lord, who is sovereign, and who can, if he's going to come in the flesh, may come when he wants and how he wants, does not come accidentally, then chooses this time, chooses this context, chooses this way. Right? These are sovereign choices by God Almighty and so worth considering. And I think that there, at least I'm going to pick up four juxtapositions, right? Four contrasts that I think let us see the glory of God as he chooses to reveal it. He could have revealed it any way. But this is how he does it. So what is the context of our text this morning? What is the context of this day that we celebrate, the birth of our Savior? Well, the first context that I'd like to point out, the first instance of it, comes right at the very beginning, and that is it's an imperial context. To me, perhaps the great contrast of this text is that we have born in a manger, the newborn king, in fact, the king of kings, in fact, the one that every king will one day bow before. And yet it comes in the year of Caesar Augustus. That the fullness of time, it's interesting that language in Galatians 4, that when the time was full, the Greek word there is pleroma. It means, it means full to the point of overflowing, ripe to the point of just exploding forth. Right? It's full that way. And for God, this moment represents the fullness of time. It was ready to give birth, if you will. And what time is it? It is the time, not just of the Caesars, there were many Caesars, but it's the time of Caesar Augustus, right? Caesar the Great. And here we have Caesar the Great, who, by the way, is not just Caesar the Great, but notice what he's doing in this text. And he's a, he's a background character. He has no idea what's going on. But Caesar the Great is summoning everyone to go back to their homes so he may count what is his. Right? Everyone's going back to register for the great census. And here is the great Caesar, the Caesar of Caesars, who summons everyone back so that he may survey and see and know for sure all that is his. And does this not put in high relief? Does this not create the ultimate juxtaposition Caesar the Great on the one hand, who by all historical accounts was great. He was a great Caesar. But just the title itself stands in contrast to this one who is born in a manger, who no one even knows of his birth. But these lowly shepherds out here who no doubt get the amazing heavenly choir singing to them. But it's into that context one where man is claiming his greatness, maybe the emperor of all emperors in all time was the Roman emperor and Caesar Augustus. And while on the one hand, there's nothing wrong with rule or authority, God gave man to rule over his creation, right? He told him at the very beginning, be fruitful, multiply, rule over the earth and subdue it. But always the rule of man was to be a derivative rule, 
a delegated rule, to rule underneath the authority of God. But as we've talked about many times, the sin in the Garden of Eden was one of cosmic treason. Man not wanting to be merely Caesar, but man wanting to be Caesar Augustus. Man wanting to sit in God's chair. Man wanting to be what God is. And Satan tempts him this way. God knows the day you eat, you will be like him. And so here in the very title, though again, on one hand, it's just he is the great Caesar. But I find it an amazing contrast that it's while Caesar Augustus is reigning that they're born in a backwater town in a manger is the king of kings before whom even Caesar Augustus one day will bow for it. On that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of his father. Glory to God in the highest, sing the angels. And yet they sing this and they set this moment in God's sovereignty in high contrast with the imperial rule of man, man at his pinnacle, pinnacle of arrogance and pinnacle of rebellion. Into that moment comes the humble Jesus, who though he was equal with God, did not count equality with God something to be held on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him giving him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee might bow and every tongue confess. Again, put into high contrast is what it means to rule, what it means to lead, what it means to be a king. We see in Christ what it means to be king. Even in his very birth, the lowliness, the willingness to take on to himself, the loneliness, the exile, the despair, which is just, of course, uh, at this point, we can't even, not even Mary can understand where this road leads. But his glorification itself, in John chapter 12, Jesus says to his disciples, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. And you're like, wow, okay, great, it's been 30 years. Finally, the glory of which the angels sung, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then in the very next breath, he says, but now my soul is troubled. Now my soul is troubled. For unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it bears no fruit. But if I am to bear fruit, if I'm to be the king that I'm called to be, then I must, like a grain of wheat, fall into the earth and die. And if I do, it will bear much fruit. This is his glory. Think about, again, the stark contrast of the glory of the great Caesar Augustus. The glory of the king of kings. So the first contrast is that of the empire, of the rulers themselves. The second contrast that I notice here and that I want to point out for us is the contrast of darkness and light. It's interesting that Christmas begins in the darkness. I had the privilege last night of going to Westminster service, their Christmas Eve service, and heard Pastor Kevin talk, and he picked up on this theme. That Christmas comes in the darkness. John takes up this theme in the beginning of his gospel. The way that he tells the Christmas story is that way. He goes theologically 
Luke goes historically, narrative, let me tell you the facts on the ground. John goes soaring into the theology. In him was the light of the world. And the light came into the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Indeed, it's at the darkness of night that Jesus is born and the heavens rip open. And again, he could have come anytime, but he chooses to come in the darkness. I, I mean, I don't know if I'm developing the poetic eye here, but I mean, I, I see a glorious story being told, a metaphor laid out for us, a foreshadowing of everything Jesus has come to do. Jesus is born into the darkness. Now, I, I ask you, and perhaps you felt the turn. It, it did feel like it got slightly awkward in here uh, at the end of the Isaiah 9 reading. I mean, you start out from the highest heights of Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. You know, his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. And then Manasseh will eat his own arm, and they will destroy each other, and they'll burn, and still my wrath will not be satisfied. And you're like, wow, okay. Um, this is not your typical Christmas narrative. All right, this is, this is what happens when you go to a church where they read entire chapters, okay? Uh, you, you get, oh, there's more to the story. Okay, I see. Um, now, yeah, okay, is that awkward? Is it troubling? This is the context that Jesus is born into. Jesus is not born into a, a, a cute story. Jesus is not born into some nostalgic story that's meant to tug on the heartstrings. Jesus is born into darkness. Jesus is born into judgment. Jesus enters a world that is about to be destroyed by the hand of God, like Jonathan Edwards preaches in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, reminding his listeners that they are like spiders being hung over a fire by a thread, which at any moment may be let go. We can't hear sermons like that today. They're too offensive to us. We can't handle that image. No, we can't handle the Bible. We can't handle Isaiah 9 past the verses that are so glorious. It's into this context that Jesus comes. We need Jesus to come because that's our story. There is no way for the wrath of God to be satisfied. I mean, the repetition on there, and still the wrath of God was not satisfied. Manasseh ate his own arm off and still, the Lord's wrath was not satisfied. No, there is nothing to satisfy the infinite wrath and justice and holiness of God for finite sinners. We need an infinite Savior. And it's into this context that he comes. He comes into darkness. And you will remember the rest of the story. Matthew gives us the version. Matthew doesn't give us all these glorious details of the birth and so forth. Matthew, after the text we looked at last week where Joseph has the angel come and appear to him, Matthew goes right to the story of the wise men and to the story of Herod. Again, think of the imperial powers, but the darkness of these imperial powers. Right? You've got Caesar Augustus reigning, and you've got Quirinius, the governor of Syria, and you've got Herod, king over Israel, king over Israel, who when the wise men come looking for the king is a little put off. What do you mean you're looking for the king? I would like to worship him too. Please tell me where he lives, where he was born. And when Herod can't find him, Herod begins killing every child under two in that whole region so that he might wipe them out. This is the context of Christmas. 
a context of darkness, a context where there's no room in the inn, and it turns out the keepers of the inn want to kill him because he threatens our order. He threatens the little lives we have made for ourselves, the order, the power that we have made for ourselves. Christina was reading me an article the other day. Again, that's our date as we, we go get a coffee drive and she reads articles to me, not because I make her read them. She enjoys reading them. I, I, read me an article. No, it's not that. Um, uh, but she, our, our cheesy date, so we read a lot of things together. And she was reading an article the other day which said, we need more Revelation 12 in our Christmas stories. And in Revelation 12, which is, again, John's vision, and I've preached on it for Christmas before, John's vision of the birth of Christ. You have a woman preparing to give birth, and it's Mary, but it's also the entire story of the Old Testament. It's Israel. But you have this woman preparing to give birth, and lurking is the dragon, waiting to pounce on the child and to destroy the child when it is born. And of course, in the story, the child is snatched and the devil, the uh, dragon is not able to get the child, so he goes after the woman and so forth. But yeah, that's the story of Herod. It's the story of the world into which the Savior is born. It's not a nostalgic, sentimental story. It's actually quite a vicious story. For unto us a child is given, and we don't want him. To us, a son. To us, a child is born. And we crucify him. This is the story into which Jesus comes. So high contrast. Glory be to God. But this is how he chooses in his sovereignty to manifest his glory. And then thirdly, of course, the whole story of the manger itself. Right? The dirtiness. Again, I can't help but see a metaphor here that Jesus is literally born in a crap hole. Okay, that he comes to a stall with animals where they're literally crapping all over the place. I don't mean to be, you know, casual in my language in a sermon, but you, it's filthy. And yet God in his sovereignty chooses to have his only begotten son born in an animal stall, literally filled with crap. It's into this world that he has come. He has chosen to come into a filthy world. He knows what he's getting into, and he chooses to come and to bear it, even to take on the filthiness. He comes to where, I'm going to read a poem. I'm going to give you a Christmas gift at the end of the uh, at the sermon. I'm going to end with a poem today, just because I know how much Mark likes poetry and sermons. Every time I read a poem, he gets me afterwards. He says, no more poetry and sermons. <laughs> so so it's a Christmas gift to you, Mark. I'll, I'll read it. Yeah, yeah. The rest of you will be blessed and Mark will be, Mark will be stewing back there. Okay. But, 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 but in, in this poem, one of my, one of my favorite lines in it is, is when he talks about Jesus being birthed and us wrapping him in our rags. We wrap him, the poet will say, in our rags. And of course, we hear the swatting claws and we get the idea, but I love the image of wrapping him in our rags because he is, he's wrapped in our humanity. But even more than that, that image that we've thought about many times in this church, the image of clothing as his image of righteousness, the fact that clothing is so important in the Old Testament that the priests had to wear you know, white robes when they entered into the holy place. 
And that when Joshua the high priest finds himself before the angel of the Lord in the vision in Zechariah chapter 3, he's wearing dirty clothes. And therefore, Satan is accusing him and he is guilty before the throne of God. And when the Lord, the judge, stands, he rebukes Satan and then demands that they take off Joshua's filthy clothes and give him new white robes. And we wonder to ourselves, well, what happened to the dirty clothes? The dirty clothes that deserve judgment. Nothing is said as nothing is said of those within the prophecy, within the vision in Zechariah three. And yet it's here that we see what happens to the dirty clothes. He's wrapped in our rags, if you will. He comes into the filthiness of the world and he bears the dirt, the crap of the world so that he might make us pure. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem, buy back those who were under the law and make us who were once enemies now heirs of God Almighty, sons of God. And I remind, I reminded my daughters this morning, we read this text before we went down together uh, downstairs that even you ladies are sons of God in this sense. Because son means heir. It's just another word for heir. And we are all heirs of God Almighty. Why? Because he who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5, became sin for us that we through him might be the righteousness of God. He came into our filth. We serve a God with dirt under his fingernails. We serve a God who entered into the ash heap, uh, uh, Psalm, Psalm 113, who is like the Lord our God, seated high above the heavens, for he reaches into the ash heap and lifts up the beggars that they might sit, be seated with princes. We have a God who's not afraid or unwilling, even in his holiness, to get his hands dirty, but comes to bear our sin that he might redeem us and make us the filthy ones, pure and clean. And then finally, the last contrast. So we've got this imperial Caesar Augustus and then this baby in a manger. We've got the darkness and yet into that darkness bursts forth the light of the world. We've got the filthiness of this Bethlehem manger and born into it is cleanness itself. And then finally, we've got glory and common things. I mean, the other stark contrast of this text is that the angels don't show up in Rome. Nor do they show up in Jerusalem. They don't really show up in Bethlehem, which would be backwoods enough. They show up in the fields of Bethlehem to common shepherds. This is good news for all. Even the kings ought to bow and worship this king, but this is good news for the common man and woman. But even more than that, and this brings me back now to my words to you at the, at the word of exhortation from Titus chapter 2, where Titus, you know, Paul calls Titus to simple acts of obedience in being husbands and being wives and being servants and being masters. In living our lives in light of the coming of Christ, he calls us to go back to work and to serve. And I love that about this text. These shepherds just get their worlds rocked as the heavens rip open, and not just an angel, but then a heavenly host, right? We get we get a choir of angels singing forth this glory, and they tell him, go, go, look for the sign. It will shock you. You see a baby in a manger. That's an odd thing. And they go, and they see, and they tell Mary and Joseph, 
what has happened. And Mary treasures all these things in her heart. And then it says, and then it says, and they returned. Verse 20, then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. And this is the reality in which we live. Things of unbelievable glory. Here we get to come and we get to sing and we get to sing in beautiful harmonies, praise to God, and then we go back. We get we go back to work. We go back to the common lives that the Lord has given us, wherein we are to glorify God. We go back giving the gifts that God has given to us and how we might use them. The common things are recognized and glorified here by God. He comes to shepherds after all. And the shepherds do. They come and see, just as we have come here today, to see and to celebrate and to hear God's word and sit before his word that we might go forth back to the common but glorious things and serve our God there. This is the contrast of Christmas, the juxtaposition, if you will, of what we celebrate today. And it is how our God chose to glorify himself and manifest his glory. And we would do well to contemplate it in light of these contrasts. Well, as I said, I will close today with a poem from the, my favorite poet theologian. Right? His name is Malcolm Geit. And he was the, he was the uh, chaplain at Girton College, Cambridge. And I love him because he, he takes Bible and theology and poetry and pulls them together in beautiful ways. He just delivered this poem uh, originally here in New York. Uh, he's, of course, he's in England, but he was here at Carnegie Hall and uh, just gave uh, this, this poem there. And it's a beautiful Christmas poem. It's called A Tale of Two Gardens. A Tale of Two Gardens. And I'll give it to you as we close this morning. A Tale of Two Gardens by Malcolm Geith. God gave us all a garden once and walked with us at eve that we might know him face to face with no need to believe. But we denied and hid from him, concealing our own shame. Yet still he came to look for us and called us each by name. He found us where we hid from him. He clothed us in his grace. But we still turned our backs on him and would not see his face. So now he comes to us again, not as Lord Most High, but weak and helpless as we are, that we might hear him cry. And he who clothed us in our need lies naked in the straw, that we might wrap him in our rags, whom once we fled in awe. The strongest comes in weakness now, a stranger to our door. The king forsakes his palaces and dwells among the poor. And where we hurt, he hurts with us. And when we weep, he cries. He knows the heart of all our hurts and inside the inside of our sighs. He does not look down from above, but gazes up at us, that we might take him in our arms who always cradles us. And if we welcome him again with open hands and heart, he'll plant his garden deep in us, the end from which we start. And in that garden, there's a tomb whose stone is rolled away where we and all we've ever loved were lowered in the clay. Below, the tomb is empty now and clothed in living light. His ransomed people walk with one who came on Christmas night. 
So come, Lord Jesus, find in me the child you came to save. Stoop tenderly with wounded hands and lift me from my grave. Be with us all, Emmanuel, and keep us close and true. Be with us till that kingdom comes where we will be with you. Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, we pray. For though you have come in our flesh, Emmanuel, God, to dwell with us, the dirty sinner, the self-exultant sinner, the sinner who chooses darkness over light, that you would come and love us, that you might redeem us and free us from our grave. Father, we rejoice in what you've done for us. And we look forward to your coming again. So come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And until then, we pray, send us back to our fields, that there we might labor faithfully with glory ringing in our hearts and in our ears. Uh, Changed, Father, because of what we've seen and celebrated here on Christmas Day. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.